welcome to the French History Podcast. My name is Gary Schirmer. Episode 11, The War Begins. Hello, and welcome to the second episode in the Gaelic Wars series. In today's episode, we are going to be covering Book 1 of Caesar's Commentary on the Gaelic Wars, which corresponds to his first year of campaigning in 58 BCE. Before we jump into the narrative itself and send Caesar headlong into his war, we need to briefly introduce our main source. Commentary on the Gaelic Wars is often regarded as a masterpiece of ancient literature and has been widely used as a textbook for Latin learners due to its clear style. The reason for this is that Caesar wanted to reach a wide audience, and his books made him a hero as his exploits were read aloud in squares all across the Mediterranean world. I thoroughly enjoyed reading his works, which are available online for free. The works consist of eight books, though the books are about as long as a book from the Bible, rather than the 300-page books we think of today. So, If you want to read Caesar's epic, I do recommend it, though you may want to do so after our series is done. You wouldn't want any spoilers, after all. While the commentary is a masterwork of the Latin language, it does suffer from many historical flaws. For one, it was a work of propaganda, and as such, Caesar omits most battles he lost or were indecisive. I don't doubt Caesar was a great general, But if you read the commentary, you'd think he only made one or two mistakes in eight years of campaigning. There were almost certainly a few battles that went sideways for Caesar. Armies or rumors of armies he chased but lost track of, and other setbacks, though these are largely absent from the story. A second problem with the commentary is Caesar's depiction of his enemy's numbers. This is usually par for the course in ancient writing, as ancient historians wildly overestimated their opponents' armies. This was both because they didn't have accurate numbers for their enemies, and because they wanted to cast themselves as the heroic, manly warriors who could stand against the barbarian hordes. But there's another reason why the Gaelic forces were always depicted as overwhelming. Caesar needed a justification for his wars. Caesar had to depict the Gauls, the Belgae, and the Germans as the numberless throngs of savages so that he could continue his wars of plunder and conquest. This is especially true as the wars dragged on. When Caesar first started his war, it was mainly a war to accumulate wealth to pay off his own creditors. As the war dragged on, he illegally added four legions to his hosts for a total of eight legions. Of course, no one would dare challenge one of the triumvirs, who also had eight legions behind him, so this illegal move went unpunished. But Caesar still needed a justification for his ever-expanding war machine. That isn't to say that there weren't legitimately large armies in Gaul that opposed him. Sometimes there genuinely were hordes of Gauls and Germans to fight. What I'm saying is that regardless of whether there were genuine threats to Rome or not in any given year, Caesar claimed there were to justify his constant military expansion. 
A third flaw in the commentary is its depiction of the motives of the Celts and Germans. And just to clarify, I am using the term Celts to refer to the four Celtic nations involved, and don't worry, I'll get into that in a second. Caesar goes into great detail about intertribal politics among the Celts and Germans, but the end result is always the same, a conspiracy to threaten Rome. Sometimes Caesar claimed that the Celts and Germans were threatening Rome when they weren't at all. Other times, Caesar claimed that they threatened Roman interests abroad. Still other times, Caesar claimed that they threatened Roman military bases. Each of these were used as his justification to invade more territory. Regardless of whether Caesar's accusations were true, it's worth considering Celtic and Germanic motives from their viewpoint. Whenever the Celts and Germans developed into a confederation, Caesar used it as a pretext to go to war, claiming that this presented a threat to Rome. While Caesar may have been right, couldn't we say the exact same thing about Rome? If Celts assembling a massive army is justification for Roman invasion, then wouldn't the Celts be justified attacking Rome if they were assembling an army, which they were? In fairness to Caesar, the Celts and Germans had invaded Roman territory before, but the point remains that Rome was now claiming it could determine military precedent outside its own territory, which the Celts and Germans must have thought absurd and insulting, especially when Rome claimed it could pick who was going to lead certain Celtic tribes simply because its political power extended into Gaul. Finally, there is the threat to Romans within Gaul itself. Oftentimes, the Gauls would assemble an army to attack one of Rome's military bases within their territory. In response, Caesar would condemn the attack and invade whichever tribe was responsible, or whichever tribe was closest. While Caesar claimed he was maintaining the peace and using his military bases abroad to keep the Celtic and Germanic peoples from uniting, I think one can understand how a Gaul would see it differently. A Gaul wouldn't view an attack on a Roman base within Gaul as an attack on Rome, but as a defense of their own homeland. To Caesar, though, an attack on his bases was an attack against Rome itself, and it provided him with one more justification for conquest. A fourth and final problem with the commentary is that Caesar didn't report the sales of the prisoners of war from his conquests. It is without question that Caesar amassed an incredible number of prisoners of war which were sold into slavery. It is estimated that between 500,000 to a million people were sold into slavery over the course of the Celtic Wars. Despite this, Caesar never reported on prisoners of war because prisoners of war were technically under the jurisdiction of the Senate, and as such, the Roman state, rather than Caesar personally, would have been entitled to the money from the sale of slaves, or at least a part of it. As such, Caesar conveniently forgot to mention capturing any prisoners of war. While most Romans probably knew he was lying about this, they largely didn't care. After all, Caesar's wars were highly popular, but what's even more important is that the massive number of slaves pouring into Rome were a huge boon to its economy. 
since this is a podcast on French history, I've skipped over a lot of Roman history, but it's worth noting here that the Gaelic Wars began a mere 13 years after the Third Servile War. What was the Third Servile War? While that name might not ring a bell for most people, I'm sure Spartacus does. During the Third Servile War, over 100,000 slaves revolted, rallying around the former gladiator Spartacus. After the war ended, Italy's slave supply was low and many middling houses couldn't afford slaves due to the high prices. The half a million to a million slaves Caesar pumped into the Roman world meant that the rich got numerous slaves on the cheap, middling noble houses could afford a slave and achieve that status symbol that eluded them for so long. Finally, more slaves meant more gladiators for the Roman games, which appealed to the masses. Caesar's selling off of slaves without giving the Senate a cut may have been illegal, but it proved so profitable that nobody thought it worth it to challenge Caesar. So, those are the main things to keep in mind as we go into the Gaelic Wars, which we are doing right now. Caesar begins the commentary by saying that Gaul is divided into three regions. Here, he is excluding Roman-held territory within Gaul. If we include the Roman province of Narbonensis, which is that strip of land stretching across southern Gaul and connecting Italy with Hispania, then there are four regions. The other three regions are Aquitania, Celtica, and Belgica. Aquitania roughly corresponds to modern-day Aquitaine. It is a relatively small area in the southwestern corner of Gaul that reaches into the Pyrenees and into Hispania. Aquitania is largely unimportant to our story. The Aquitaini were less numerous than the other Celtic tribes, and because the most populous Gaelic tribes were in north-central Gaul, the Aquitaini were incapable of joining their cousins when a large anti-Roman confederation was made. Suffice it to say, Aquitania was conquered by a subordinate of Caesar's while he was off fighting more important foes. Which brings us to the next territory, which is the center of our story, Celtica. Celtica roughly corresponds to modern-day France, minus Aquitania and Narbonensis in the south, and in the north, some of what is today France was part of Belgica then. However, Celtica stretched further east than modern-day France as it reached into modern-day Switzerland. Celtica was where the vast Gaelic tribes lived in their rich and illustrious oppidums. Celtica was divided into numerous different tribes, but in general, the tribes of Celtica were united by a common ethno-linguistic background. Since the Gauls were Celts, they were the cousins of the Aquitani, the Belgae, and the Britons, who made up the four Celtic nations of the ancient world. Which brings us to our final part of Gaul, Belgica. The word Belgica clearly corresponds to modern-day Belgium, but don't let that fool you. Belgica was much larger than just Belgium, as Belgica included part of northern France, Luxembourg, and much of the southern Netherlands. 
As such, Belgica was a sizable place with a noticeably large population. Not as large as its neighbors, but certainly large enough that its people weren't conquered by the Gauls or Germans. It was also a very important place because of its position. Belgica was closest to Britannia, and as such, it was one of the crossroads of the North Atlantic world. Goods were traded between Britannia, Germania, and Celtica. When Caesar wrote about the Belgae, he claimed that they were the farthest from civilization, meaning they were hardy, warlike, and lacking the effeminacy of city dwellers. Scholars agree that this comment was Caesar's way of depicting Rome as the center of civilization, and the farther one got away from it, the more savage people were, so we have to take this quote with a grain of salt. But despite this, the Belgae certainly had to be tough, considering they were outnumbered by their neighbors. So those are the four regions of Gaul. Narbonensis in the south, which is a part of Rome, Aquitania, the small area in the southwest along the Pyrenees, Celtica, the vast land of the Gauls, and Belgica, the far north, which was bordered by the sea to its west and north, and the Rhine River to the east. Yet these aren't the only regions Caesar will war with. There are two more beyond Gaul that are essential to our story. The first we'll look at is Britannia. To the Romans, Britannia was the edge of the world, but to the people of Gaul, Britannia was that island where their wild cousins lived. Britannia was not a far-off mystical place, and northern Gauls and Belgae often ventured to and traded with the Britons. According to Caesar, Britons involved themselves in wars in Gaul and provided safety for their cousins fleeing the Romans. As such, Britannia was one more part of an interconnected Atlantic world, which is why, as Caesar fights the Gauls, he realizes that as long as Britannia is free, Gaul will never truly be settled due to the cross-channel connections shared by these Celtic peoples. There is one final region we need to talk about before our war can begin, the all-important other world of Germania. Before the Gaelic Wars, no recorded Roman had ever crossed the Rhine River into Germania. As far as the Romans were concerned, Germania was a vast land that covered all of northern Europe, stretching from the Rhine in the west all the way to Scythia, or modern-day Russia, in the east. In the Roman mind, Germania contained the numberless hordes of German warriors, driven half-mad by the freezing winters, wearing thick furs and running screaming into battle. Because of this, one of Rome's primary national security concerns was making sure the Germans didn't cross the Rhine River, because if they got a foothold on the other side, this could open the door to millions of invaders. Furthermore, this concern was shared by the Belgae and the Gauls, who fought brutally to keep the Germans on the other side of the Rhine because of this same fear. Even today, modern historians don't know much about Germania during this time. Based on archaeological evidence, the Germanic peoples didn't construct large cities or monuments. 
Instead, they were spread out in numerous tribes across a vast area that included much of Central and Eastern Europe. One thing that kept Germans spread out was the terrain. Travel was much easier in the Mediterranean due to the easily managed sea routes, while in Gaul the numerous low valleys lent themselves to habitation. The land north of the Alps was covered in a vast, thick woods. It was much colder than it is today, meaning that few traveled along the North Seas. For all of these reasons, the Germans were divided geographically and thus politically. For much of our narrative, Germania will be a dark shadow over the events taking place. While the Gauls and Romans fight each other, both would look over their shoulder to make sure that they weren't overwhelmed by a mass migration of Germans. This fear was what started the Gaelic Wars. Two episodes ago, I mentioned that the Arverni tribe was tired of the Adwai ruling over Gaul, and invited the Suebi tribe of Germans to conquer the Adwai sometime around 60 BCE. This they did, and while there, the Germans took over other Gaelic tribes, as every fear the Gauls had came to life, as the Germanic king Ariovistus had come as a conqueror. Rome wasn't ready to intervene then, but as 120,000 Germans marched into Gaul within a few years, they knew this had to be stopped. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 59 BCE, Caesar was proclaimed governor of Gaul, and by early 58 BCE, all he needed was an excuse to involve himself in the Gaelic Wars. In 59 BCE, Caesar was proclaimed governor of Gaul, and by early 58 BCE, all he needed was an excuse to involve himself in the Gaelic Wars. This excuse came when the Adwai leader Dumnorix hatched a plot to unite with the Helvetii tribe and reconquer north-central Celtica from the Arverni-German alliance. Dumnorix engaged in secret negotiations with Orgetorix, the leader of the Helvetii, a tribe of Gauls in what is today western Switzerland. Dumnorix married Orgetorix's daughter, sealing an alliance. Orgetorix then stirred his people up, claiming that the Helvetii would leave their homes on the frozen northern side of the Alps and march toward a land of settled oppidums and incredible wealth. There the Helvetii could be wealthy and powerful, and stand at the political, geographic, and financial center of the Gaelic world, rather than its eastern fringe. While Orgetorix was entreating his people to join him, other leading members of the Helvetii tribe accused him of trying to seize power for himself, making himself their king. Thus, the Helvetii started to fight amongst each other, and Orgetorix died while on the run, 
possibly a suicide, though we'll never know for sure. While Orgetorix was dead, he had stirred a fire within the Helveti tribe. Other leaders took his place and urged the people that their future was west in the heartland of Celtica. According to Caesar, the Helveti packed up what belongings they could and then burned their homes. Before heading west, the Helveti decided that they needed top-of-the-line weapons, and so they marched east to Noria in modern-day Austria. That city had been a trading partner of Rome, providing them with the highest quality swords in all of Europe. After attacking Noria, they marched east towards mainland Celtica around March. When Caesar heard of this, he marched out to Geneva to meet them with one legion while ordering for more to be raised. In early April, the Helvetii, not wanting to anger Caesar, sent ambassadors to ask for permission to peacefully move through the Roman province of Narbonensis. In response, Caesar pretended to deliberate while destroying the bridges out of Geneva. After that, Caesar made a wall, 18 Roman miles long, 16 feet high, with a trench from Lake Geneva to Mount Jura to close in the Helvetii. The Helvetii, finally realizing they'd been duped, attempted to cross over into Gaul using boats, but were assailed by Roman missiles. The Helvetii then decided to march north through the territory of the Gaelic tribe, the Sequani. The Aduan leader, Dumnorix, still wanted to bring the Helvetii into an alliance with himself to fight the Arverni and Germans. Dumnorix was popular with the Sequani and arranged for the Helvetii to march through their territory. Caesar's spies told him the Helvetii were marching north, but that they also wanted to move south into Midwest Gaul, which was dangerously close to Narbonensis. This is almost certainly propaganda on Caesar's part, as he had to make the Helvetii look like a threat to Rome, when they were, in all likelihood, meeting up with the Adwai for an intergalic fight in the Middle North. Claiming that the Helvetii might loop around south, Caesar assembled five legions from Italy and marched through the Alps into Transalpine Gaul, fighting his way through. Here I'm going to read a quote from the commentary, and keep in mind Caesar refers to himself in the third person. Caesar writes, there is a river called the Seon, which flows through the territories of the Adwai and Sequani into the Rhone, with such incredible slowness that it cannot be determined by the eye in which direction it flows. This the Helvetii were crossing by rafts and boats joined together. When Caesar was informed by spies that the Helvetii had already conveyed three parts of their forces across that river, but that the fourth part was left behind on this side of the Seon, he set out from the camp with three legions during the third watch and came up with that division which had not yet crossed the river. Attacking them encumbered with baggage and not expecting him, he cut to pieces a great part of them. The rest betook themselves to flight and concealed themselves in the nearest woods. That canton, which was cut down, was called the Tigurine, for the whole Helvetian state is divided into four cantons. 
This single canton, having left their country within the recollection of our fathers, had slain Lucius Cassius the consul, and had made his army pass under the yoke. Thus, whether by chance or by the design of the immortal gods, that part of the Helvetian state, which had brought a signal calamity upon the Roman people, was the first to pay the penalty. In this, Caesar avenged not only the public, but also his own personal wrongs, because the Tigurini had slain Lucius Piso, the lieutenant of Cassius, the grandfather of Lucius Calpurnius Piso, Caesar's father-in-law, in the same battle as Cassius himself. This is a truly remarkable passage that shows that Caesar blended destiny and opportunity to the point where no one can say where one ends and one begins. Did Caesar really fight a legendary enemy of Rome? Perhaps. But regardless of whether or not he did, Rome's humiliation at their hands was in the past and one of many setbacks Rome had faced. But Caesar took this minor skirmish with a fleeing group of migrants and made it the first of his legendary exploits as he molded himself into the savior of Rome and bane of its barbarian enemies. Seeing that Caesar had five legions at his command, the three remaining cantons sent ambassadors calling for peace, while also warning Caesar not to start a fight with them as they reminded him about ancient defeats. Caesar was undaunted and demanded hostages, which the Helvetii refused and withdrew deeper into Celtica. Caesar trailed the cantons with his army and his cavalry engaged in brief skirmishes as the legion shadowed the Helvetii. While the Romans marched, many Gaelic tribes withheld grain from Caesar as many supported the Helvetii as liberators against the status quo. It was at this point that Caesar discovered that Dumnorix wanted to use the Helvetii to reconquer Aduin territory taken by the Suebi and Arverni. Caesar would not allow for mass migrations of Gauls as it threatened Roman interests, and as such condemned Dumnorix. Then he summoned Davidiacus, Dumnorix's brother, who was in high standing with Rome, to judge Dumnorix. Davidiacus, in tears, begged for Dumnorix's forgiveness. Dumnorix was then summoned, and Caesar ceremonially forgave him. The fact that Caesar claimed that Dumnorix had transgressed against Rome by conspiring with other Gauls to settle an internal affair in Gaul against a German invasion tells us all we need to know about Caesar and Roman power at the time. Rome thought it perfectly reasonable that they should exercise veto power over large-scale activities in Gaul. That Dumnorix wanted the Adwai to chart their own destiny was a crime against Rome. While Dumnorix and the Adwai symbolically submitted to Rome, this still left the Helvetii loose in Celtica. Caesar's armies continued to shadow them across mountains, hills, and plains, until Caesar broke off the hunt to march to Bibracte for food. Seeing this, the Helvetii believed Caesar was afraid of the power of their tribe and turned around. Thus, the hunter became the hunted. In response, 
Caesar used his cavalry to buy time while he formed his legions into a line across two hills, facing the Helvetii with his baggage train behind him. At this point, Caesar supposedly abandoned his horse to stand by his men, risking his own life beside them. It sounds like propaganda, but then again, Caesar was beloved by his men, and he did idealize Alexander the Great, who supposedly fought alongside his men. Caesar's soldiers, hurling their javelins from the higher ground, easily broke the enemy's phalanx. That being dispersed, they made a charge on them with drawn swords. It was a great hindrance to the Gauls in fighting, that when several of their bucklers had been, by one stroke of the Roman javelins, pierced through and pinned fast, as the point of the iron had bent itself, they could neither pluck it out, nor, with their left hand entangled, fight with sufficient ease, so that many, after having long tossed their arm about, chose rather to cast away the buckler from their hand and to fight with their person unprotected. At length, worn out with wounds, they began to give way. Just as the Romans looked like they were about to be victorious, two Gaelic tribes, the Boi and Tulingi, decided to fight alongside their fellow Gauls against the Roman invaders, and battle was renewed. After seven hours of fighting, the 130,000 Helvetii army retreated. While they escaped, Caesar stayed for three days to care for the wounded and bury the dead, then followed them into northeastern Celtica. Weary, and having already faced a defeat, the Helvetii sued for peace. That night, one canton fled, leaving only two of the original four. Caesar ordered food to be given to them, and that they return to their own land, lest the Germans occupy it. This was an incredible victory for Rome and for Caesar personally, as it impressed the power of Rome upon the Gauls. Caesar recounts that after this war was waged, ambassadors from almost every part of Gaul assembled to congratulate Caesar and to negotiate terms for peace. As we shall see, Celtica frequently had governing conventions overseen by Caesar, and it was at this moment that the Gauls realized that Rome was the new great power in Gaul, and that Rome could be used to counterbalance external threats. Thus the Gauls probably saw Rome as less of a threat than the Germans, because Rome was only slowly encroaching upon Gaul, while the Germans had invaded swiftly and in large numbers. It was at this point that the Gauls told Caesar of the 120,000 Germans that had entered Gaul on the invitation of the Arverni to fight the Adwai. The Gauls warned Caesar that Ariovistus, king of the Germans, had seized the land of the Sequani, his former Gaelic allies, and cruelly invited more Germans in to take their holdings, and that unless Rome did something, all Germans would cross over the Rhine into Gaul. It is here that Caesar portrays Ariovistus as a sadistic torturer and a madman. Whether this was Gaelic propaganda to get Caesar to fight the Germans, or Caesar's propaganda to depict himself as a hero against a perverted wicked king, 
or German propaganda to terrify the Gaelic people into submitting, we'll never know. All that we know is that pretty much everyone involved was trying to portray Ariovistus as a power-hungry warlord. Believing he was the new master of Celtica, Caesar ordered Ariovistus to meet him. The German king refused, fearing treachery. In response, Caesar sent out new envoys and demanded Ariovistus halt the incoming Germans and restore the hostages he'd taken. Ariovistus replied that Rome governed conquered nations as it willed, therefore the Germans could do the same. While negotiations were ongoing, Caesar learned that a new batch of Suebi were migrating over. Alarmed, he marched out to attack Ariovistus. As Caesar neared Ariovistus' armies, Ariovistus called for a meeting, at which point the Roman general and the German king rode out with their elite guard to negotiate. It must have been a strange sight, as the olive-skinned, mid-sized Mediterranean man in shining armor stared down the hulking, wild-haired German covered in furs. Undaunted, Caesar demanded Ariovistus return to Germania and let the Adwai rule Gaul. Ariovistus scoffed, insulted, and claimed he was invited by the Gauls and won his spoils in war, giving him every right to hold on to his lands. With negotiations going nowhere, Ariovistus' cavalry hurled weapons at Caesar and his guards. Caesar hastily retreated rather than fighting. According to Caesar, it was because he didn't want to kill any Germans and give Ariovistus an excuse to say he was attacked first, though I'm guessing Caesar was still human enough at this point to run away when a bunch of angry Germans were hurling spears at him. At this point, Ariovistus knew there was no avoiding a fight, unless he wanted to be chased back into Germania. The German king swung his army around to come between Caesar and his supply lines. In response, Caesar lined up his army for battle. Caesar waited for five days, but Ariovistus remained entrenched, only skirmishing with cavalry. Caesar then moved his camp, retaking a position to resupply himself with food from his Adwai dependencies. Caesar then moved his camp, retaking a position to resupply himself with food from his Adwai dependencies. A small battle ensued before Ariovistus retreated, giving Caesar the territory he wanted. It was then that Caesar learned that Ariovistus would not engage him in a full battle because his matron diviners told him that he could not win a battle before the new moon. Upon learning this, Caesar led his troops against the Germans, and thus began the Battle of the Vosges. Caesar himself led the right wing against the German left, which he believed was their weakest. From behind the German army, The German women were gathered, crying out to them to get them to fight desperately, as defeat meant everything would be lost. The Germans rushed forward so quickly the Romans couldn't throw their javelins and dropped them to engage in sword fighting. It was during this battle that Publius Licinius Crassus, son of the triumvir Marcus Licinius Crassus, 
first proved himself in battle by ordering the reserve to support the Roman right. After a hard-fought battle, the Germans broke and fled. Those that weren't quick enough to get across the Rhine were cut down. We can only guess what happened to the women, children, and elders left behind, though I am guessing that most of them became part of the potentially million slaves sold to Rome. Caesar's first year in Gaul was an unmitigated triumph. First, he had become the recognized master of Celtica, forcing all the Gauls to submit to his authority in matters of state. Even those allied to Rome, such as the Adwai, who had only wanted to call upon their brothers the Helvetii to expel a foreign invader, now had to appeal to Rome first when making major decisions. Caesar's second victory came from the expulsion of the Germans, as he expelled or sold into slavery 120,000 invaders and stopped a new wave of migrants from crossing the Rhine. This ties into his third victory, which was the mass number of slaves he was able to sell off, which lined his coffers and kept his creditors off his back, if only for a while. Because, let's not forget, Caesar had a tendency to keep spending money as soon as more came into his pockets. Finally, Caesar's propaganda war was working marvelously. He supposedly had defeated a legendary enemy of Rome in that one Helvetii canton, and stared down a German king. His legend was now rivaling Pompey the Great, as Caesar angled himself as Rome's new master. But if Caesar thought Gaul would submit to him this easily, he has another thing coming. As Caesar wintered in Italy, and 58 BCE turned to 57 BCE, Celtica quieted down as it recovered from the war. But up in the north, the Belgae were organizing. Seeing Rome bring Celtica to a heel, the Belgae began to form a confederacy against a possible Roman invasion. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. 
We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.